As we move into our sermon today, we are in the second week of a series called Back Together. We're looking at the art of reconciliation. We recognize that God has called us to be His agents, to put a fractured world back together, fractured relationships, families, workplaces, friendships, cultures, communities, cities, world, nation, everything. Uh, and, and what we talked about at the beginning last week, uh, we used this Rubik's Cube as an illustration. Because a Rubik's Cube, you know, is actually originally designed. I've done a ton of research on Rubik's Cube since last week, so you're going to hear a bunch of this. Um, I've gone down the rabbit hole. And so this was originally designed as a piece of art. And it was only later that the guy who invented it figured out it was also a puzzle. Uh, one, arguably one of the most difficult puzzles ever made. Which is interesting since people can solve it in four seconds. But we'll get to that. So it looks beautiful like this, and this is what we want our lives to look like. Everything in its proper place, everything in order, working together, everything in harmony, right? That's not actually what human lives generally look like. Now, maybe most of us, uh, you know, we, at our best, we, we look like that. You know, we're pretty close. But the truth is, just being in our fallen human state, our lives, you know, we lose our temper, and we lose our job, and you know this relationship breaks down, and this relationship breaks down, and, that, and things happen in our lives because living is messy, and we keep bumping into people. It would be so much easier except for all the people. And then we have years like this last year where things, this process seems to accelerate, and our lives actually end up looking like this. They look messed up. They look shaken up and fractured, and this is not nearly as pretty. And so we are called as Christians to put this back together. And we also, in, in a lot of cases, you know, we want to put it back together because these are our lives, our relationships, our families, our marriages, our communities that are shaken up. But even when it's not that personal, when we don't have a desire to put the world back together, or even when our little neck of the woods is put back together, we are called by Christ to put this back together. Now, I said that the Rubik's Cube is actually one of the hardest puzzles to, fill, to solve. And if you've ever tried to do this without being taught how to solve it, you know how hard it is to solve a Rubik's Cube, because you've got to put the pieces in the right place, and then you've got to put the other pieces in the right place without moving the, other, the original pieces, right? It's very, very difficult. However, what they have found by modern computing is that you are never more than 20 moves away from solving a Rubik's Cube. You can solve any configuration of a Rubik's Cube in 20 moves or less. The problem is that no person can actually look at a Rubik's Cube and know what those 20 moves are and what order to do them in simply by looking at it. It's kind of like in our lives, it can be easy to say, hey, well, this is what needs to happen. This is what things need to look like. But nobody actually knows how to really make that happen in real life, right? Like if, if one person could ma wave a magic wand and sort the whole world out, things would be better just because they were running according to one idea. You know, they might be smoother. But getting to the place where we all need to be is the hardest part. And so, that's, so life is, in that way, rather like a Rubik's Cube. Now, you might think, well, if it's only 20 moves, then um, why don't you just learn those 20 moves? Because, in, in fact, the people who solve these competitively, they, use, they average significantly more than 20 moves per solve, even though some of them can do it in four seconds. They're just super fast, and they're doing more than 20 moves. Why haven't they just memorized the 20 moves? The reason is because it, it, there is 20 moves for every configuration of a Rubik's Cube. Do you know how many configurations there are of a Rubik's Cube? 
you may have thought that this was a pretty simplistic uh, model of human lives. Human lives surely can get more messed up than a Rubik's Cube. The fact is that there are 43 quintillion configurations of a Rubik's Cube without taking off stickers or removing panels, without taking it apart. 46, 43 quintillion. Okay, that number is impossible to get in your head. Uh, here's one thing I can tell you. My, I use my laptop computer, not a little not a little calculator, my laptop computer to do some math on this, and it could not handle that number. I had to cut it off by three digits. I had to reduce it by a thousand, a factor of a thousand, just to do the statistics I'm about to tell you. So that is that is a billion, 46, 43 billion billion combinations. Okay? If you were to make a Rubik's Cube in each one of those combinations, it would cover the Earth five kilometers deep, just three miles. You could make the moon out of those Rubik's Cubes. In fact, let's say, well, why don't we split up the work? Let's get every single human being on the planet to take some of those combinations and figure them out, figure out the steps, and then we'll just have all the steps for the Rubik's Cubes. Well, if you did that, every single person on Earth would need to be assigned 550 million combinations. Every living person on Earth, 550 million combinations. If one person were to solve every one of those configurations in a world record pace of four seconds apiece and do nothing else, it would take them 276 million years to do all those combinations. It's crazy, right? That's why they don't just memorize those moves. Instead, uh, the truth is, I, and this is not actually bragging, I can solve all 43 quintillion of those solutions. I haven't memorized a single 20-move configuration. What I did was I learned nine, uh, what are called algorithms. Nine series of moves that if you do them, and you do them enough, the pieces will end up in the right place regardless of where you start out. One of them we talked about is a right trigger. Last week I mentioned a right trigger. Here's a left trigger. There's a double trigger. Um, the, now I'm trying to memorize, I've just recently memorized the ones at the, at the end where you go, And if that had been almost solved, it would be solved now. Impressed? No, but that's what you do. You memorize the, the procedures, these algorithms, and if you use the algorithms, you can solve the bottom level, and you just focus on solving the bottom level, and then you solve the middle level, and then the hardest one is the top level, because then you can't move anything down here. And by doing those steps, those algorithms, even if you don't know how they work, you just do them, and the thing eventually gets solved. And that's how you can solve all of them. It doesn't matter where they are. The Bible is like that. The Bible does not give you the 20 steps to solve your specific configuration of conflicts and issues. We wish it did, right? You, we wish that we had a Bible addressed to me individually with my individual configuration. The problem is there are more than 43 quintillion ways that human relationships can get messed up. So that's not how God has taught us to put relationships together. He teaches us the algorithms. He teaches us the steps that you can apply wherever you are. And if you just focus on what's in front of you and apply what he has taught us, these basic moves, that is how the Holy Spirit uses us to bring reconciliation. It's not foolproof because God has given us the freedom to reject his reconciliation. But this method, this empowered by the Spirit, has done amazing things over the past 2,000 years to bring people together. It has done amazing things. And unfortunately, we draw all attention to the, the, the fractures in Christianity without recognizing how amazingly uniting Christianity has been over the past 2,000 years. So, 
Last week we talked about self-control, which has to be the first step because self-control is all about being able to do what you should do even when it's not what you want to do. Doing what's consistent with your principles uh, as opposed to your impulses. And that's essential because it doesn't. if you know what the right thing is to do but you don't ever do it, the knowledge is useless. So the first step is we have to be able to actually do the steps. We have to actually be able to learn the algorithms and, and devote time and, and focus. And so that's why we started with self-control. Today, we're moving into the next step, which is love. Uh, actually, in my small group, when I said we were talking about love, I got a groan. Because, wow, that's, that's real insightful, right? Love, we need love for reconciliation. Then I said we were going to be in 1 Corinthians 13, and I got a louder groan. And they both came from my wife. 1 Corinthians 13, if, you're not re- if you don't recognize the citation, you've heard the passage most likely in a wedding. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, the, the, the central part of it says this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You've probably heard that at a wedding. Uh, You may have only ever heard that in a wedding. Uh, It's a very popular phrase, or a very popular passage, and very poetic and beautiful. But... One, and and it, is, it is being used properly. You know, it, is, it is absolutely great to use it in a wedding. The problem is we pretty much only really talk about it in weddings, and that makes us think about it specifically about romantic love. And that feeds into the way our culture talks about love, because our culture means something very different about, by love than what Paul is meaning by love. And that's why we need to talk about love today, because love is, as we'll see, central to what reconciliation looks like. But love, according to Paul, means something very different from what we think of when we talk about love. And so that clarification needs to be made. And actually, the best place to make it is in 1 Corinthians 13, because we use it so casually sometimes. People who aren't Christians use 1 Corinthians 13 in their weddings. But we don't recognize that in this very common passage on love, we see a very counter-cultural message about what love is and about the kind of love that actually creates reconciliation because the world's kind of love is actually one of the most uh, driving influences for uh, fracturing our world, I would argue, and breaking up our relationships, this mistake about what love is. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the context, the situation that's going on when Paul writes about this, because he wrote this to the Corinthian church, and he was not responding to a request for something to read at weddings. The Corinthians didn't send him a letter saying, hey, we need something for a wedding we're going to do. Can you write something pretty on a postcard? They had a a legitimate problem. They actually, the Corinthians had a lot of problems. If you ever want to feel better about your church community, read the first and second Corinthians, because they deal with so many issues, so many problems. We're going to focus on one, and the, the one problem that is the reason why he talks about love. I think that this passage really ta- refers to all the problems they're dealing with, but it's specifically dealing with one issue that this church is having as a congregation. So then we're going to talk about the situation, then we're going to look at the solution and how love is meant to solve that problem, and finally, we're going to calibrate our understanding of reconciliation based on our understanding of love, so that we re- know what biblical re- reconciliation really looks like. So we're going to start by looking at the situation in Corinth. And the thing about these letters is we're literally reading someone's mail, and we're getting one side of a conversation. 
So when we read a letter, oftentimes, that's why you need to read it more than one time, because certain things will jump out at you. And you have to be thinking, now, what was going on that caused him to write this letter? And I'm going to read you a passage that is a very positive, uplifting passage at the very beginning. If you On your second or third reading, on your multiple readings, you start to pick up some things that are actually signs of, of what the problem, one of the problems that they're going to run into, because some key words come up here. This is what Paul says in uh, chapter 1. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you in the, to the end, guiltless to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a good thing, a okay? good passage. Paul founded the church in Corinth. He went to Corinth. He preached the gospel. People responded. And what he's recognizing is here is in here is he's celebrating how great that went. Because apparently, when he preached the gospel in Corinth, there was a big response, and the people that responded found that they received tremendous spiritual gifts. And there's key words that jump out here that will come up later. He says that uh, in every way you were enriched uh, in him in all speech and knowledge. His speech and knowledge are going to be important. And so he talks about how they became believers and God just poured out blessings on them. And they, they had all this momentum and all this enthusiasm and all these gifts that they received from God. So the Corinthian church had been exceptionally blessed with spiritual gifts. Now that is a good thing. God was generous to them. Awesome things happened. Okay, The church grew. The church looked great. Everything was going really well. The problem is their people. And these Corinthian people responded to these gifts that God gave them in a way that human beings often respond to gifts, which is that they began to think a lot of themselves for having those gifts. They began to get arrogant. And there's a passage where Paul, Paul again, we're reading, Paul, we're reading their mail. So you kind of have to piece this together. But there's one place where Paul really kind of, he, he has an edge to it when he calls them out on this. Here's what he says in chapter 4. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, meaning the apostles, you became kings. And would that you did reign, that we might share in the rule with you. What he's saying there is that they, they got these gifts, but they are acting as if they brought these gifts to the church. Right? You, they, they, came to be, they became Christians and God gave gifts to them, but they're acting as if the church is lucky to have them because they brought these gifts to the table. In fact, they're acting as if the apostles are lucky to have them. They say, hey, we've already got it figured out here in Corinth. We're already reigning in the new kingdom. Everything's good here. We, we are the right ones. God is, we are clearly the ones doing it right because of these gifts that we have. And Paul, Paul really lays it on as he's comparing the, the apostles, because, because the, basically they start to think that they're, because things are going better for them than for the apostles who are traveling around doing the hard work, they think that they're better than the apostles. He says, we apostles are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. This is how they think of themselves, right? They look at Paul going around getting beaten and laughed at in these different cities, and they think, well, I mean, that's not happening to us because we've got it right. And eventually, they are going to have a real problem with Paul, and they're actually going to tell Paul, if you want to preach here, we need letters of recommendation before we're going to let you to, on the, at the pulpit. Because you, you don't seem to be gifted in the ways that we're gifted. 
And they actually, one of the first things Paul calls them out for in 1 Corinthians is that they've started to pick their favorite preachers. And they say, well, I follow this guy because I think he's the best. And they're, they're choosing people based on their gifts. And, and they're really elevating certain gifts over others. So the problem that's really happening here is the Corinthians became proud of their gifts and they judged people based on their giftedness. They judged and evaluated people based on the gifts that they had. And this made a lot of sense to Corinthians. Last week we talked about the culture in, in, in Crete for the letter of Titus. In Corinth, they, were, they had a lot of philosophers. They were a center for travel. They had a lot of people come through. And it was a big fad during this time that you wanted to follow the guy who was the best speaker. And so it was really important to evaluate people and find the leaders with the best gifts. That was just what their culture was doing. You wanted the people that sounded the best. didn't matter what they said as long as they were the most eloquent. And so this was already in their DNA to kind of evaluate people this way and judge people this way. If you're gifted the way we like, if you have the gifts we like, we'll like you. And if you don't, you're not important to us. Now Paul will deal with this with a passage that is very inspiring and beautiful in, in 1 Corinthians 12, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. And, and it's a very uplifting, positive, encouraging passage. But what I want to do today is I want to read it remembering that Paul is writing to a church and we're getting one side of the conversation. And so what Paul is saying is he's telling them about things they're not currently doing. He's correcting a problem. So uh, he's going to give you a metaphor of the body of Christ and he's going to put words in the mouths of, of the, the parts of, G, of the body. And uh, the, the implication being that these are words that people in Corinth are saying to each other. So here's what he says. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Right? This is what we talked about a couple weeks ago, Paul's message of reconciliation, that the gospel is open to everybody and God's making us into one body. Amazing, inspiring stuff. Okay? He says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense, uh, where would be the sense of hearing? This is a logical argument that he's making. You know, a body needs all of its parts. Even if there's some body parts that you seem to pay more attention to, you actually need all of them. But notice the dialogue there. Why does he put the dialogue in there? I would argue it's because he believes that there are people in the Corinthian church who say, because I don't have that gift, I do not belong to the body. That's why he's talking about this. Parchment and ink were expensive. He's talking about this because it was happening. There were people who were saying, because I don't have that gift, I don't really belong here. What we can tell is the, uh, at least a couple of the gifts they were really overemphasizing was prophecy, uh, it was prophecy, knowledge, and speaking in tongues, which are all very public, vocal, imp impressive things, right? So basically, if you can't do those things, people would feel like, hey, if I don't have those gifts, I'm not really important here. I don't really belong here. I'm not valued. Why would they think about? Why would they think that way? What gave them that idea? Well, it was probably because this was happening. He says, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. He's saying that because in that church, there were people saying, hey, you don't speak in tongues, you don't have anything that you can do up front. Well, you're not really that important. You can just sit in the back and watch if you want, but this church is for people with these gifts. This is really what we're doing, and you're not part of that. You know, they, they were basically told, we don't actually need you because you don't have these gifts that make you a worthwhile Christian. 
You don't have the things we're looking for. We really need added value you know, with our members, and you don't add any value, so you're not important. He says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. What he's, he's saying this because that's not what they're doing in Corinth. They're not uh, showing greater honor to the parts of the body that are unpresentable. Now, what that might mean, here's a, an example of what I think that might mean. Let's say that they, they really believe in speaking in tongues. So they say, hey, we'll go around and everybody will speak in tongues, or we'll prophesy. Everybody's going to prophesy, and just go around and let everybody prophesy. What if, you, what if it comes to you and you don't prophesy? Right, like that's a way to really, like really make a person feel excluded, feel pointed out. Like you're not, you're exposing their weakness, if we can call it a weakness. You're putting them on the spot. You're not actually, you know, helping them. You're bringing attention to the fact that they don't have what you consider to be valuable. I think that might be part of what he's talking about. That they're just, they don't show any compassion for people um, in those kinds of situations. So what's happening, if we stick with the metaphor of the body, is that they deformed the church body by elevating those with certain gifts and shaming those without them. They decided, we want a body with a big mouth. We're going to emphasize the mouth characteristics. And what happens is their legs atrophied because all they cared about was getting more cells in the mouth, more mouth parts. You know, they wanted a louder, bigger mouth. And they, they basically told the feet, oh, you're not a mouth? We don't need you. So the body got deformed. And this, this is what always happens in any group of human beings when you let one part, one side, one, one talent, one, like it can happen in a family when you only care about one thing and the whole family gets deformed around that. It can happen in a marriage. It can happen in, in a team. It can happen in a church when you're emphasizing one part at the expense of others and the whole body gets deformed. It doesn't operate properly. People are deeply, deeply hurt in those situations. And the result of that, I mean, there are a lot of issues going on in Corinth, but I think that this dynamic is at the center of all of them. Because it makes sense when you have a body that is deformed like that, that the result would be a dysfunctional church that is left open to all kinds of errors and conflicts. If you read 1 Corinthians, it is just, it is a compendium of all of the things that a church can fight over. All the ways the church can go wrong. They've got people who are, uh, who are teaching that the resurrection isn't real, that the resurrection doesn't happen. They've got all kinds of uh, sexual immorality that people are proud of because they think being free in Christ means you can do whatever you want and it's good to be more sinful than the, than the pagans. And, and they, uh, the reason Paul writes those words in 1 Corinthians 11 that we always hear at communion, like we heard about today, is because their communion was totally messed up. Right? And there are so many problems in the Corinthian church. And in fact, 1 Corinthians doesn't work. Uh, it, like, remember we talked about how people can refuse reconciliation from God? Yeah, 1 Corinthians didn't accomplish its goal because when you read 2 Corinthians, you find out things got worse after they got the letter. Right? They were had all kinds of issues, and I think it was largely because they had become deformed in their relationships, and they had become full of themselves about certain gifts. So in chapter 12, Paul tells them, here's the things that, here's what the body should look like. But he doesn't just say, okay, now go out and find people for all these gifts. Don't you kind of wish he'd give us a list? Like, here's, here's the gifts you need. Here's the percentage of your, your church that should be, have each of those gifts. Here's a properly formed body, right? That's not what he does. 
He probably did not anticipate that being able to uh, stream on the internet was going to be an important gift for the body, right? Instead, he says, I will give you a more excellent way. He gives them a solution that will put all this together. And the solution is love. Here's what he says when he goes straight into chapter 13 from there. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, if you're prim- primarily familiar with this passage from weddings, you may not understand why he uses that list of things. But if you understand the context, you see that the reason why he talks about speaking in tongues and having prophetic powers and understanding mysteries and knowledge and faith is because those are the things that the first Corinthians were full of themselves over. Those are the things that they thought made a good Christian. Those are the qualifications that they were looking for when they wanted people to add value to their church, right? They wanted people with those things. And what Paul is saying is those things that you value so highly, those gifts that you value so highly are worthless without love. If you use them in a way that is not loving, they are garbage. They are pointless. Love, because maybe what was happening was they thought that love was one of the gifts. Like, that person prophesies, that person speaks in tongues, I have knowledge, and that person loves. So if you want love, go to that person. But I'm just going to tell you how it is, and uh, yeah, go to them for love, come to me for knowledge, right? That's not the role that love plays. Love is central to everything. Everything needs to be done in love, and love is the job of every person. So love is not an option It it should not come up on a spiritual gift inventory. It is essential to everything. Everything must be done in love. But if it's essential to everything and everything must be done in love, then it's probably important for us to know what love is, right? Love is one of those words that you say it so many times it loses its meaning. And that's definitely happened in our culture, and it definitely happened in the culture in which Paul was living. And so Paul gives us, he kind of gives us a definition of love, but it can be hard to nail down. What he gives us is a description of love. And that description of love, even though we've gotten used to it, we tune it out when we hear it in weddings, and we just like, okay, wake me up when this passage is over, I've heard it before. It's actually deeply countercultural, and it has been ever since it was written. So we're going to look at this and see what Paul actually says about the nature of love so that we can understand what Paul means by love contrary to what our culture tells us about love. Here's what he says. Look, look for common themes here. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. That is Paul's description of love. What does he not include in that list? He does not include butterflies. He does not include warm and fuzzy feelings. In fact, he does not include feelings of any kind. Those are not feelings. The closest you would get is irritable or resentful, which are really behaviors that come out of feelings. But he's not talking about feelings. He's not saying love is when you just light up when the other person comes into the room. You know, love is not, you know, when Thumper's foot goes. You know, like that's not, he does, it's not a feeling. It's, he actually lists actions. But and, and as DC Talk famously said, love is a verb, right? Except I would go a step further because it's not just actions. Love is a decision to act in certain ways. What that means is that love is not a feeling. Love is actually a commitment. 
It is a decision to treat people in certain ways. It is actually, in a way, the opposite of a feeling because it's disconnecting your treatment of a person from your feelings about them. It is saying, I will treat you this way, full stop. That's what Paul is describing here. It is a commitment to treat people in a certain way, full stop. That's why self-control came before love. Because self-control, because love requires you to have self-control to be able to say, I feel this way, but I'm going to act this way. Let's look at that list again, and you'll see. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Here's another important thing about love that you'll notice in that list. Another thing they all have in common is that they are all instances of choosing the other person's good over your own feelings. Patience means choosing another person's good over my timeline. Meaning that I really want to be somewhere else right now, but I love this person enough to stick with them. I'm sticking with them for their sake, even though I want to be somewhere else. Kindness means I'm going to treat them this way, even though I don't feel like they deserve it right now. Right? Kindness means treating somebody better than you would feel like, or better than they may deserve. Envy and boasting are all self-centered. Arrogance and rudeness are self-centered. Like this, it's, it's all, in every case, it is choosing another person over what I want to do at the time, what I feel like. Love is not self-serving. Love is selfless. This is really important for us to hear because our culture has been turning this around and saying that love is about how I feel. Like the first step is you say love is about how I feel, and the next step is love is about me feeling that way. So that my goal in choosing a spouse, for instance, is to find the person who makes me feel that way and will keep making me feel that way all the time. Because when I stop feeling that way, then, then what's the point anymore? Because it's all about a feeling. And we do that in our friendships. We do that in all kinds of relationships where we make it about how I feel. And actually, it's about satisfying my feeling. So often, we define love by, do they make me feel the way I want to feel? There's this, the, the way our, uh, kids, you know, kids, I probably can't say kids my age anymore, can I? Um, but the way people in my generation will, will get anxious about love is, do I, am I really in love with this person? Like, I like them, I love them, but am I in love with them? And I think what we're saying is, do I believe that that person will make me feel this way all the time? Because that's what we expect, is that love is about me. But that's not what love is. Love is selfless. Love is about choosing the other person and committing to that other person and what is good for them. You scared yet? Because it gets scarier. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things, endures all things. This is a really inspiring passage to read to your glowing spouse uh, at the aisle when you believe that it will be easy to bear everything that they will bring to your life and believe everything that they say and hope all the time and endure everything. It seems easy in that doe-eyed moment, right? And then you're in a real relationship. And, and I don't want to make this too marriage-focused because this is actually about every relationship. But this is just how we apply this so often, right? But when, you're, when you first like, become friends with someone and you first, your relationship begins, you feel like, oh, it'll be easy to do all this stuff. And then it starts to change. And then we want an out, Right? We all want an out when it becomes difficult to bear all things because we don't want to make that commitment. That's scary, right? Because if you commit to bearing all things and then it ends up requiring more than you expected, 
right? Now you're exposed. If you say, I'm going to believe all things, and it turns out that person's a bit of a liar, they may make you look like a fool. They may deceive you. If you say, I'm going to hope all things, and it gets hard to hope, you know, when we endure all things, and you didn't realize you're going to have to endure this much, that's scary. To make that commitment not knowing what's going to happen. And we don't want to be afraid. Like, we don't want it to be scary. But what, I, what we have to learn about love in this case is that love is not safe. Love is not safe. It is always a risk. You know where I learned this? Becoming a parent. I heard this from other people, and I thought, oh, that, okay, I get it. Um, it sounds a little exaggerated. Um, you know, parents have a tendency to play up being a parent like it's the most important thing in life and, and it's the, the culmination of being a human being. That's, that's how I felt, and I, I, probably what I do now, now that I am a parent. But be, when you're a parent and you see that child for the first time and you suddenly realize that it's like your heart is outside your body and the level of things, the number of things that you worry about is somehow just so much longer than it used to be. Because now I'm worried about everything that's going to happen to that human being. James was born and the list of things I worried about skyrocketed. The distance into the future that gives me anxiety, I can no longer say, well, I'll be dead by then. Right? I have kids. I have two of them. Right? And I know that that's only going to get bigger as they are able to do more things. Like James can't even really talk back to us that well yet. Charlie can't even walk. And that's, having a kid is risky. It's scary because I can't help but love them and be attached to them. You know who else did that? God. God loves us in a risky way because he gave us the ability to reject him. He gave us the ability to turn away and walk away and to cause all kinds of pain and strife in his family. And not only that, but he sent his son to be the one to pay the price for that and to make things right. This is the way God loves. It is not safe. It is always a risk. Finally, Paul points one more thing out about love that I think is really important for us to hear. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What Paul is saying in that very dense passage is basically this. All those, pa- all those uh, gifts that you think are important, yeah, they all have a shelf life. As important as it may make you to be able to prophesy or speak in tongues or lead worship or do administration or whatever your spiritual gift is, whatever you bring to the table, it has a shelf life. I try to remember this. I actually said this a long time ago in a sermon before I came here, and I try to remember it, that, that when, it, when we are all on the new earth, uh, I'm going to be the one who has to get retrained to have a useful job, right? Like, I'm going to have to go to Kingdom of Heaven Community College to learn a useful trade because there will be no use for pastors anymore, right? Everything that I have to offer to the table right now will become obsolete, except for love. Because love will always be at the center of the plan. For eternity, we will be called and designed to love God and to love each other. That's what he means when he says love never ends. Every other thing that we get our value from, that we get our self-esteem from, will eventually become useless. But love, 
will always be at the center. So when you have to decide, what am I going to invest my time and effort into? What am I going to consider important about myself and about what I do? The best place you can invest is in love. Love is not temporary. Love is eternal. And you can see how Paul can use this to offer it up as the real solution to all of the problems that the Corinthians are dealing with. In reality, this could be the one algorithm that I teach you. Because if we love the way Jesus does, if we genuinely put people at the center, other people at the center, if we genuinely look out for that good, it will correct. If we could do it perfectly, it would correct for every any and any imbalance in the church, in our relationships, right? If I genuinely care about that person more than about my own desires and my own agendas, that will correct for whatever power imbalances there are, whatever deformities there are. It will bring us all together. It is the hardest thing for us to do, but it is also the most powerful thing for us to do to put relationships together. If we can love the way Jesus does, the way God does, instead of the way the world does, that is the most essential step that we can take. And the fact that loving like Jesus is essential to the biblical view of reconciliation tells us that reconciliation in the biblical view is different from what the world sees as reconciliation, what the world accepts as reconciliation. So I'm going to, as we close, I'm going to give you three things to take home about reconciliation and, and what we need to think of when we are going out to bring people together. First is that the goal of reconciliation is community, not conformity. Too often what we think is our approach to, to reconciliation is to say, well, when we all agree on the same thing, when we all look alike, then we'll be together. And we never say when I look like that person, Right? It's never when I come around to their way of thinking we'll be united. It's always when they come around to my way of thinking, when we all look the same. And unfortunately, this has been a lot of Christians' approach to unity. This has been a lot of how we justify divisions in in our movement that is supposed to be, in, in Christianity, which is supposed to bring people together. We say, well, when they start doing church like we do, then we'll get along. right? When they start reading the Bible the way we do, then we'll get along. It's all about making sure everybody looks the same. But that's not... Love. Love actually values the other person for who they are and who God made them to be. Love doesn't care about whether they become more like me. Love cares about whether they become what they are called to be through Christ. And that's to look like him. So love, reconciliation is about making a community of people under Christ, not making cookie-cutter people who all look like me. Second, Reconciliation is impossible without vulnerability. Too often we miss opportunities to seek reconciliation because we're not willing to risk. We're not willing to risk being told no. We're not willing to risk being embarrassed in public. We're not willing to risk bringing them into our home and letting them mess up the dynamic of family dinner. Right? We don't want to take the first step because we might be pushed away. And what we end up doing is wishing we could be reconciled, but waiting for the other person to reconcile with us. If we're going to build reconciliation where it really matters, which is where it's hardest, that means we need to make ourselves vulnerable. We need to put ourselves out there. We need to be willing to sacrifice, you know, a comfortable family dinner. I am an introvert. You know, I like, I like to know exactly how things are going to go at the family meal. And, and so for me, it's like, oh, okay, I need to prepare myself. The dynamics are going to be different, right? <laughs> Some people thrive on that. I have to prepare myself for it. But that's worth doing right? 
We need to be willing to make ourselves vulnerable in order to create real reconciliation in the world. And finally, reconciliation requires our sincere dedication. Paul could have given them the rubric and said, Here are, here's what the body should look like, here's how much you need of each category, here's the list of goals. But he tells them it needs to be a body, and the way they do it is through love. He didn't give them the formula. He told them, Don't, you can't begrudgingly reconcile. You need to be invested in it. You need to care about it. This is one of the things, the world has a poor counterfeit for this. How many of you really are just looking for someone to tolerate you? How many of you have just been yearning for someone to coexist with you? That's the, the counterfeit that the world often offers is tolerance and coexistence. And I know sometimes they, they mean differently often than what I'm implying there, but I, we want more than that, right? We want love. We want genuine love in our relationships. And that means that we have to buy into it. We have to care about it. We have to be sincere. We can't begrudgingly get shoulder to shoulder with people and create a family of love. We have to be sincere. We have to be intentional. We have to pursue it. We have to be Christ-like. Amen? As we close, I'm going to ask you where you are at in this journey of reconciliation. Because the first step that makes all of this possible. The Rubik's Cube, it's not like a Rubik's Cube where these magic nine steps, you do them and it won't fail. The reason these work is because they are empowered by God. And so this first step is that we have to be reconciled to Jesus Christ. We have to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And so if that's the step that you are at, then today is the best day for you to give your life to Jesus and say, you know what? I want to be on God's team. I want to live life God's way. I want to be part of his kingdom. I want to follow him. Today is the best day to do that. And so if you want to make that decision, I encourage you to come forward during the song. If you're here, if you're online, talk to a Christian that you trust. Get in touch with the the church office. We would love to talk with you about that. If you have been reconciled with God, then that means you are now on a mission to bring reconciliation to other people. And that means what I want you to think about is where is God calling you to build reconciliation? Who is God calling you to love? And it's going to be the people it's hard for you to love. Sorry, that's just how it generally works. The people that you most need to love, that God needs to call you to love, are the people that's going to be hard to love. Who is that person? What does that love look like? I want you to think about that. I want you to pray about that. I want you to bring that to God. And today might be a great day to make a commitment about loving that person. And finally, we are not called to do this alone. We do this in the power of the Holy Spirit, but we also do this as a community. As a church, we, we want to be that community that is held together by that love. We also want to train each other to love in that way. So we would love for you to be a part of that by continuing to worship with us. Another next step is to join in our small groups and the Unity Project, get, get in touch with the, the uh, living together as a community. And you can place your membership here if you'd like to be, uh, be connected with the congregation in that way. We'd love for you to go deeper into this life of love that God calls us to together. So I encourage you to consider those decisions as we stand and sing our final song.